Revelation 16, Armageddon. Wasn't kidding. <laughs> the theme of the book of Revelation is that the king is coming, and we are nearing that point. We have come right to the end of this seven-year period here in, uh, that's known as the Great Tribulation in Revelation 16. God is pouring out his undiluted wrath upon those who have taken the mark of the beast, and he's doing so through these seven bold judgments. And unlike the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments that we've seen earlier in the book of Revelation, these bold judgments, they are not for the purpose of bringing mankind to repentance. These are God's final temporal judgment upon those who have already made their final decision. And this judgment of God upon them culminates in the last two bowls and a place called Armageddon. So chapter 16, we begin in verse 12 of Revelation. And the sixth angel poured out his vial, the King James says. It, it, vial is, I usually think of a, a thin a container. This is a shallow, broad bowl. So the angel, sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, for they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. So this sixth angel pours out his bowl upon the great river Euphrates the water of the Euphrates is dried up, it says, so that the way, the road, the path of the kings of the east might be prepared. While the Roman Empire controlled a small region north and east of the Euphrates River, the river was essentially the empire's eastern border. It was the closest thing to a secure barrier against the eastward nations because it runs 1,800 miles from its origin in the mountains of Armenia uh, all the way uh, down pa uh, past Babylon to the sea. And so when we're trying to identify who the kings of the east are, it could be any or all of the nations that are east of the Euphrates. So that includes countries like Iran, uh, Pakistan, India, and China, of course. Now, that it is the kings of the east and not one king it shows us that multiple nations are involved in this group that is going to cross the river Euphrates into the Middle East. It is an eastern coalition of nations and leaders. As of 2017, there are eight member nations in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. I think I spoke at length on that in either this year or the previous year's prophecy update. So you can, if you want more information on them, you can get those messages online. In those eight member nations uh, are China, Russia, India, and Pakistan. So a large amount of these Eastern nations. It is my personal belief, when you look at Rome's immediate enemies to the East, so when John's writing this, it would be the, the Parthians. They were a group that uh, were located in modern day Iran, and, and they were always a thorn in, in Rome's side. In fact, when, when Rome started to 
weaken, the, the Parthians came in and they took control of Babylon and other, region, uh, other areas in that region there. But while Iran would be the normal group that you would think of when you think of a group that includes the kings of the east, it is my personal belief that Iran will be taken out in the Ezekiel 38 and 39 invasion of Israel that occurs prior to the Great Tribulation. When the Antichrist sets up his headquarters in Babylon, it will likely be because that part of the world is no longer so volatile. And so that would push any threats to his kingdom, his reign, farther to the east than Iran, to the member nations of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Now, the river Euphrates, because of the natural boundary it creates in that region, armies have always had to become creative in overcoming it in the past. When Remember when we studied Daniel, the defeat of Babylon when Belteshazzar was king, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. We talked about how the Persians, how they got inside was through, they diverted the Euphrates River, which runs right through the city of Babylon, and the river was dried up, and they snuck in during the nighttime when it was dried up. Uh, That's how they conquered the city. So nations and, and armies have had to get creative in dealing with this natural boundary. Well, today, the Euphrates River is a shadow of its former self. It's drying up. Some channels, in fact, are only 12 feet deep right now. And as a result, a region that is already greatly impoverished due to decades of war and terrorism, it is losing its main source of agriculture because the Euphrates doesn't do the job anymore. In fact, many students of modern history believe the Syrian civil war was a result of impoverished farmers who left the Euphrates region to urban cities looking for work and then, of course, unable to find any, revolted. And so, this area is, is a powder keg right now, and, and so this bowl judgment here will likely be the final stage of the Euphrates drying up. It was a frequent thing to talk about probably 20, 30 years ago when the Euphrates was running a little bit stronger to say that, well, you've got the dam that's up there in Turkey, you know, and, and they can control that, and if they dam it up, the Euphrates will be dried up, and so they'll be the ones who bring about this problem. The problem with that view, though, is it doesn't say that the Euphrates River will be dammed up. It says it will be dried up. And so there are numerous dams, actually, that are located along the Euphrates River that can be used to stop the flow of water. In fact, ISIS, when they controlled that region, they would use that to control the farmers. They would tell them and say, if you don't do this, we're just going to dam the river up again. And then when they would do that, they, they had no way to make money. So this is something that can be done now if they wanted to. But this means it'll be dried up completely. Something's going to happen where whatever the source of water is coming in, it's going to go away. And as a result, the entire Euphrates will be able to be crossed. And so that's what it says, that the way the road of the kings of the east might be prepared. This is something, this will open the door for these eastern nations who've grown disgruntled with the Antichrist power play to move into the Middle East. They will have been looking for a time to strike, and this will be the signal we can do it. Now, when we look at Armageddon, when, you know, Armageddon is a phrase that's been used in movies, it's been used as all sorts of things. They've, they've call, they call asteroids Armageddon sometimes. They do all sorts of things Armageddon. Armageddon is frequently misunderstood for anything bad. But Armageddon is the world war, not just a battle. It is a world war that culminates in the valley of Megiddo or the valley of Jezreel. 
Now, that war is covered in its entirety from beginning to end in Daniel 11, verses 40 through 45. So let's turn there real quick to understand where we are here in that war in Revelation chapter 16. Daniel 11, verses 40 through 45. I don't want to go through all of chapter 11 because I've already done that when I taught Daniel. So if you want to get all the information here, about the Antichrist and everything else, you can get that study online as well. But in verse 41, we begin this war. In Daniel 11, 41, or chapter 40, I'm sorry, chapter 11, verse 40, not 41. It says, and at that time, so this is the end times, at the time of the end, shall the king of the south push at Kim, the Antichrist, the willful king that's mentioned in verses 36 through 39. At the time of the end, this king of the south, this, this, this faction from North Africa is going to invade the Middle East. And the king of the north, that's Russia, shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships. And he shall enter into the countries and he shall overflow and pass over. So this, there's going to be a two-pronged invasion of the Middle East where the Antichrist has his kingdom at. And it's going to come from Russia in the north and from North Africa. They're going to invade the Middle East, in particular the Promised Land, and the Antichrist is going to respond by bringing his forces into the Promised Land area. Look at verse 41. He shall enter also, he, the Antichrist, into the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. He will use this as an excuse to take control of Israel and all sorts of other regions in that area. But these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab, and the chief of the children of Ammon, the country of Jordan. For whatever reason, the country of Jordan is spared. Verse 42, after he confronts these two invading forces and is victorious, he then invades North Africa. Verse 42, he shall stretch forth his hand also upon the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. But he shall have power over the treasures of gold and of silver. He shall completely conquer Egypt and all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his steps. He will be in the process of controlling all of North Africa. But, and this is where we come to in Revelation 16, but tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. He will repel Russia, but they're going to reattack again when in conjunction with this eastern coalition. Therefore, he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. He's going to come back into the Middle East. He's going to bring all of his European forces with him. They're going to call them to come into the Middle East, verse 45. And he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain. He's going to put his palace there in Jerusalem. He's going to put all of his armies there in the promised land, and yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. So he will fall there. That will be the end of him. That's where we're at though here. Verse 44 is where we're at in Revelation 16, verse 12, with the kings of the east coming in. This war, Armageddon, has already been going for a while. It's been going likely for at least a year, maybe months, we don't know how long, but it's been going for a while. And when news comes in from the invasion of these kings of the east, they cross the Euphrates, it says that he will respond. He will have to respond to this new threat. So verse 13 shows his response. And I back in Revelation, Revelation 16, 13. 
And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet, for they are the spirits of demons. So the response will be a spiritual response. Now, we see frogs here, and, and I realize that not everybody has the same opinion about frogs. Um, I know some of you may be creeped out by frogs. Frogs are cool for me. If we're talking spiders, it's a whole different story. But frogs in the Scripture, the only other time they're mentioned in the Bible beside Revelation 16, 13, is they all refer to the second plague in Egypt, every single other occurrence. So while frogs may normally be harmless, the frogs from that plague in Egypt, they were not harmless. They permeated everything in Egyptian society. You couldn't cook your bread without them getting in. And I don't know about you, but as much as I like frogs, I don't want them in my souffle. Now, these demons are not frogs, but they look like frogs, which is a complete different impression than we get of the Holy Spirit who took, looked like a dove, right? Very different, okay? And the idea here is they look like frogs is because they're going to permeate everything around them just like those frogs did in Egypt. Whatever they're about to do, it's going to infect everything around them. And that they emerge from the mouths of the unholy trinity. The dragon is Satan, the beast is the Antichrist, the false prophet doesn't need an explanation. That they emerge from the mouths of the unholy trinity explains to us their purpose. Their purpose is deception, to deceive. And that deception is going to permeate everyone that these individuals influence. Now, they're going to influence through deception through miracles. Jesus, when he was describing Satan to the religious leaders, he was saying they were like him. In John 8, 44, he said, you are of your father the devil, and the desires of, the, of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. He did not abide, remain in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own. That means from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of it. Satan can't tell the truth. He doesn't know how to tell the truth. He's, he's been speaking lies for so long, it's all he knows. That's what Jesus said. He's just always a liar. So we know if something's coming out of his mouth, it's not the truth. It's a lie. So these frogs, these demons coming out of his mouth, out of the mouth of the Antichrist, out of the mouth of the false prophet, they are bringing deception and they are authenticating their deception through miracles. These demonic spirits will enable the Antichrist and the false prophet to sway the other world leaders in their coalition, the kings of the earth, to commit to an all-out war to preserve the Antichrist kingdom, what they've built. And yet, it mentions not only do they deceive his coalition, but they deceive the kings of the entire world to gather all of them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Now, why would Satan and his two leaders on earth be behind a global war? Why would he want to draw his enemies, the Antichrist's enemies, those who oppose him into this place, this one location for an all-out global war? Why would he want to deceive them to come to the battle? How does that serve their utopian promise? Well, this is where the, the, the shoe's on the other foot. This is where you see it. This is where you get to see the full purpose of the enemy, the mystery of iniquity revealed. Utopia was never the plan. It was never the purpose. Satan's plan is to go to war against the Lord. 
And he wants everyone, all the unbelievers in one place. It says that the purpose is to gather them, to cause to come together into one location to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Now, Satan can read the Bible as well as anybody. He knows what's coming. He knows about the day of the Lord. And though the Antichrist sold a utopia to people, Satan's plan is twofold. Number one, we're going to take on the Lord, and if that fails, we'll take out Israel. And what better way to do that than to get all the world's armies and all the weapons that the world has into the promised land? We're going to take out the Lord, and if we can't do that, we'll take out Israel. Because if you destroy Israel, then God's promises fail. And if God's promises fail, then how can God be just to judge him? So that's his plan. It's not a good one. It's a bad plan. But it's his plan. It's his thinking. Jesus, he predicted this final deception. He predicted the catastrophe humanity would be headed for by listening to this deception. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 21 through 25, when Jesus was talking about the end times, he said this, Matthew 24, 21, for then, the end times, this is after the abomination of desolation, right here in the midst of, you know, the end of of the seven-year period, the great tribulation. He says, for then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. It'll be the worst thing ever. And except those days should be shortened. If I didn't come back to stop it, there should be no flesh saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Then, during that time, if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or, lo, or there, do not believe it. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and they will show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before. Jesus predicted this would happen, and now we're reading about it in Revelation chapter 16. Now, At this point in time, the Lord, John records, that the Lord interjects an explanation of what John's seen. The Lord speaks up and he says, behold, pay attention. Verse 15, behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Behold, which means pay attention. John, I know what you're looking at here is important. You're seeing this horrible, bold judgment. You're seeing all the world gathered to the battle of the great day of Lord God Almighty that Satan really thinks he's going to take on the Lord and he's going to bring everybody into one place to do it. But John, you need to pay attention to this. There's an important blessing that's available to us. There's an important blessing that's available to you. He says, behold, I come as a thief. Before he gets to the blessing, he warns, I come as a thief. That phrase, I come as a thief, is always used in Scripture to refer to Jesus coming upon the world in judgment because they are unaware. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 2 and 3 is one of the couple of places in Scripture this is used, and that's exactly how Paul describes his phrase, coming as a thief. He says, for you yourselves know perfectly, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, not us, when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Then in verse 4, he says, but you, brethren, are not in the darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. There's a clear distinction between you and they. 
It's a, he comes as a thief for those who are not looking for him, for those who are not following him. He comes in judgment. For us, we're watching, right? He's not a thief to us. So the idea here is when he says, behold, I come as a thief, he's saying, I'm right around the corner. We're almost at the end. I'm coming to judge the world. I'm coming to stop this. This looks like the end. looks like no one's going to survive, but I will come to stop this. Blessed, here's the blessing now in light of that thought. Blessed is he that watches and keeps his garments. Oh, how happy, oh, how blessed is the one who does two things. He watches and he keeps his garments. The word there, watch, means to rouse yourself out of sleep. There's a blessing upon the person who does not allow himself to be lulled to sleep by the deception. Blessed is the one who wakes himself up, rouses himself out of sleep, and goes, that's wrong. (laughs) The second part is who keeps his garments. The word keeps means to cause a state to continue. Garments all throughout the book of Revelation refers to the righteousness of Christ that we've been clothed with. We see Jesus use it multiple times in the parables where he talks about having the right clothes. It refers to our righteousness in Christ. So blessed is the one who wakes up and stays in Christ's righteousness, right? Jesus told us that the deception during the great tribulation would be so strong that if it were possible, believers would even be deceived by it. That's how bad it is. But the believers during the tribulation period, as they heard those lies, they woke up. They said, nah, that's a lie. We're not buying into that. We're not going to be lulled to sleep by that nonsense. They rejected the promise of the Antichrist. They rejected the idea of self-righteousness. And so he says, he says to them in particular, you need to remain alert and never trade the righteousness Christ offers for any of his lies. Because if you do, you're going to walk around naked and others will see your shame. The word here for shame is used only one other time in the Bible. It means they'll see you're not in good form. They'll see you're out of place. Listen, if I'm going to trust in my own righteousness, the reason my own righteousness is out of place is because my own righteousness isn't righteous. You know, it's like walk around going, look at my new outfit. And you, you're like, dude, you're, you're wearing a, a wrap of toilet paper around your neck. That's it. You know, go, go put some clothes on. No, man, I'm in my own righteousness. No, you're naked. It's horrible. You know, you're completely out of place. Do you see anyone else dressed like you here? You don't belong. Go home and get dressed. That's the idea that's being conveyed in this imagery here. My own righteousness is out of place because it's not righteous. It leaves me unclothed. It leaves me in need. It lacks what's necessary to bring me faultless before the Father. So the need here is to remain alert and reject what the enemy offers. Now, that blessing is not just for the tribulation saints. John is writing this to anyone who reads it. There's numerous blessings in the book of Revelation, numerous beatitudes for those who take heed to what it says. This is for us too. We're called to wake up, to not forsake the righteousness of Christ. In Mark chapter 13, 35, Jesus says he's talking to tribulation believers. He's talking to the nation of Israel and what they're going to go through during that time. At the very end, he says, and what I say to you, I say to all, watch, watch. 
I'm not just saying it to you. Yes, I'm speaking to a specific group of people, and a lot of the things I'm saying have to do with a specific time period. But what I say to you now, I say to everyone, and it is this, wake up. (laughs) Rouse yourself out of sleep. Because Jesus, his righteousness, that's always the only thing that's necessary to bring me faultless before the Father. In Jude 24 and 25, those beautiful words, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. None of us are going to walk in heaven and be like, boom, baby, I'm here. Check me out. We will be presented. I will not present myself. You know, it's not like, you know, Peter's going to walk up, the illustrious Mr. Pastor, Reverend, whatever, Holy Ramirez. No, no one's going to do that. And I'm not going to waltz in and be like, I'm not going to introduce myself. Jesus is going to present me to the Father, faultless, with great joy, because I'll be in his righteousness, not my own. He is the only wise God, our Savior. To him be glory and majesty and dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. Not to me. And so, guys, no matter how hard your struggle and your faith might be right now, no matter how great the temptation you might face, no matter how good the enemy's offer might seem, Jesus is way better. That's the point of what Jesus is saying. Behold, pay attention. I'm coming like a thief for all those people. I'm coming to judge them. Blessed are you if you wake up. Stay in my righteousness. Don't ever go that route. Don't ever buy into that lie. Don't ever give up. Hold fast because I'm better. Do you believe that he's better this morning? Because he is. Verse 16, Revelation 16, and he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. He there, there's lots of debate on who he is. Uh, some people say, well, it's got to be the Lord because you know, he's the sovereign Lord who's in charge of everything. And you know, he just is, he's the one who just spoke. The problem with that is the way Greek works is if you've got a pronoun, it has to go back to the last pronoun that agrees with, and it doesn't agree with Jesus. In fact, if you want to get most literal, it agrees with us. Certainly, it's not us, which means the reference is to someone else. Now, we already know from verse 14 who's the one who's gathering them together. We know it's the devil. He's the one gathering together. I'm not saying God's not sovereign. I'm just saying this is not a reference to that. He, the enemy, Satan, because the Antichrist and false prophet are just his pawns, he gathered them together, them, all the kings of the earth, into a place called in the Hebrew tongue, Har-Mageddon. It's one word that comes from two compounds. Har means mountain or the mountain. Mageddon means Megiddo, the mountain of Megiddo. Mount Megiddo is a hill on the western side of the Jezreel Valley. If Israel ever returns to normal, we'll go back and you'll see it if you come with us. I think probably one of the coolest moments in my life was teaching about the Battle of Armageddon or the War of Armageddon from Mount Megiddo. But Mount Megiddo is a hill, and it's estimated 26 layers of civilization have used the site for a city. 
There are other places you can see the entire Jezreel Valley from, but Megiddo is positioned right along the Via Maris. That's the road that runs north and south through the Middle East, even still today. If any army wants to move through the region, it has to go that way. I mean, otherwise you're going to be bogged down. And so it's the site of 34 major battles in history, that valley. It's the site of the first confirmed battle we know of in history, and it will be the site of the last one before Jesus returns. Now, this valley here will not be the only location to see battle. We know at the end of Armageddon that three locations will experience fierce battle. Basra in uh, Jordan, where Israel is hiding out. Jerusalem, which will be overrun. And Megiddo, which we are speaking of now. And that's where the largest portion of the Antichrist troops will clash with the invading armies from Russia and the Far East. But it's into this global conflict that the final bold judgment comes. It follows swiftly with Jesus' return. Verse 17. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great." This seventh angel pours out this final bowl into the air. It's the last part of our world that has not been affected by God's judgment. God poured out bowls upon the sea, upon the fresh water, upon the earth, upon the Antichrist kingdom, upon these men, and now upon the air. The very air will be affected and will cause three simultaneous cataclysms to occur. But before those occur, there comes a great voice, a shout out from the temple of heaven, from the throne, from the Lord, saying, it is done. It has been brought to pass. This will finalize or finalizes God's temporal judgment upon the rebels. Verse 18, the first two cataclysms that occur are a massive storm and an earthquake. There were voices, the word just there actually means distinct noises. We've seen this phrase used all throughout Revelation to describe massive storms. Thunders and lightning, so there'll be a massive storm. And uh, like the seventh trumpet, we get two cataclysms occurring at once. There was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. The strongest earthquake in history that we know of is the Valdivia, Chile earthquake of 1960. Um, It was a 9.5 on the Richter scale. The rupture zones were estimated to range between 300 and 700 miles It left 200 million people homeless, and it triggered a massive tsunami that hit New Zealand, Japan, and the Philippines. That's crazy. And that's a 9.5. This one will be worse. It will rewrite maps and borders. Look at verse 19. It says, And the great city was divided into three parts. Uh, Revelation 11 verse 8 
uses the phrase the great city to refer to Jerusalem. Babylon is also called a great city, but it's mentioned specifically later in this verse, so Jerusalem is probably what's in mind here. We already know from Revelation chapter 11 verse 13 that a tenth of Jerusalem was destroyed by a previous judgment. This time, the entire topography of the city of Jerusalem is completely altered. It is my personal belief, which is worth less than two cents, my personal belief that God will use this earthquake to destroy the rebuilt temple and the temple mount because of its idolatrous place in the world. Why do I believe that? Because the millennial temple predicted by Ezekiel in Ezekiel 40, chapter 40 through 48, I'm not going to reference that today. You can look at that on your own time. lists very detailed measurements for the millennial temple. That temple is far too large to fit on the present day temple mount. Joel 3.18 and Ezekiel 47 both predict that this new temple location will be on top of a new spring that runs from Jerusalem all the way to the Dead Sea. And so while certainly God could do all of that without altering the topography of Jerusalem, it seems more in line with the rest of Scripture to say that this spring breaks out because of this earthquake. So the city itself will be divided It'll be changed into three different parts, it says. Now, Jerusalem is just one of the cities judged by this earthquake. Verse 19 goes on to say, and the cities of the nations fell. Uh, We didn't read it in our scripture reading, but Isaiah 24, which describes this final judgment in greater detail, talks about this particular thing in verses 19 through 21. In Isaiah 24, 19, it says, the earth is utterly broken down. The earth is clean dissolved. The earth is exceedingly shaken. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall be removed like a cottage. And the transgression thereof shall be heavy upon it and it shall fall and not rise again, the earth. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall punish the host of the high ones that are on high and the kings of the earth upon the earth. Every major city that you know of today will not exist. It will be destroyed through this massive earthquake. I can't even fathom that. Now, one city though, however, stands out above them all that John makes special mention of it here. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Just as the angel warned in Revelation 14, 8, don't take the mark of the beast, don't trust in the Antichrist and his kingdom, his city is going down, his kingdom is going down, it will fall. And here we see it fall. We will get into why God is so angry with the city of Babylon in chapter 17 and 18. So you've got to come back next week for that. It also mentions in verse 20 that every island fled away, disappeared, and the mountains were not found. The earth's entire topography has changed. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, in addition to these two simultaneous cataclysms, a third cataclysm occurs at the same time, making this the worst judgment that God has sent thus far. Look at verse 21. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. Now, the phrase their men literally reads, and there fell upon the men, those who had taken the mark of the beast. This, this plague is very selective. 
It says that great hail, the phrase there great is the word megas in the Greek. This is mega hailstones fall out of heaven upon these men, every stone about the weight of a talent. Depending upon which culture's talent you have in mind, that can be anywhere from 50 to 110 pounds. That's mind-blowing. The heaviest hailstone that's been authenticated in history was a 2.25-pound hailstone in Bangladesh in 1986. That storm, only 2.25-pound hailstones killed 92 people. Hailstones weighing about two pounds fell in South Dakota on July 23, 2010. Those produced an impact pit about 10 inches across the ground. Can you imagine the devastation from the impact of a hailstone anywhere from 50 to 110 pounds? It doesn't matter which culture's talent you're using. If you get hit with one of those, you're not surviving. Now, before we move on to the response to this plague, it is important to note that the penalty for idolatry is stoning. God's final judgment is the temporal justice they've earned. He stones them for their idolatry. They have bought into the lies that the enemy brought, and God, therefore, is just. He is just to judge them in this way, to punish them with stoning. And that justice is proved even more by their still refusal to repent as the stones are falling upon them. And men blaspheme God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. It means it was mega-violent, mega-terrible. In other words, they know who sent it, they know why He sent it, and they slander His character because they believe He's wrong to do so. You don't, we didn't earn this. (laughs) To the very end, they still refuse to own up to their sin. They bought into the lies that Jesus warned us to reject. They allowed themselves to be lulled to sleep and refuse to wake up. Now, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 through 12 describes this time, God's judgment, and their mentality. You think, well, surely someone would wake up. Surely someone would realize this is not working, you know? Surely someone would repent. But in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 through 12, it says this. And then, during the end times, verse 8, 2 Thessalonians 2, and then shall that wicked one be revealed, the Antichrist, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all powers and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness. He's going to tell them their own righteousness is fine. He'll deceive them in them that perish. But here's why they perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Notice, it doesn't just say they didn't receive the truth. They didn't receive the love that was found in the truth. They refused to believe that God loved them. They refused to believe that God's way was best. They refused to believe that following the Lord would be the best place of care. They rejected that love. That they, might not, that they might be saved. 
And so because of this, God shall cause, for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they might believe a lie, that they all might be condemned who believed not the truth, and here's the other side of the coin, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Paul tells us there are two reasons these rebels persist in their rebellion to the very end, even as a hundred pound stones are being dropped on them from the sky. And, and you know, what, again, it's not just hundred pound stones are falling, they're being dropped on them, all right? One of my favorite parts in all of the Bible is when Moses goes into Pharaoh, he pronounces the plague of hail, he commands the hail to come, and then he just waltzes out without a fear in the world because it can't touch him. Hailstones are falling all around him, hitting the ground, bursting into fireballs, and he's just walking through because he knows they're not for him. These men will know that thing has my name on it. One of those is coming for me. And they will persist, knowing they're going to be destroyed. Persist for two reasons. Because they reject the truth of God's love and because they find enjoyment in things God hates. They refuse to give it up. So many scriptures talk about this mindset during the end. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, Paul warns Timothy, this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. They will be covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, that means irreconcilable, man, irreconcilable, that describes our culture today. Fierce, it means brutal. Despisers of those that do good. Traitors. Heady, it means reckless, high-minded, prideful, haughty. Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. It's right there. It's not a new idea in Revelation. So you might be saying, okay, that's horrible, Pastor Will, but what's the point for us? Listen, guys, Armageddon isn't just a global battle. It's a place, Har Megiddo. It's the gathering place of all God's enemies, which means it's a place no believer should ever be. Armageddon is more than just a battle that's gonna take place or a war that's going to happen. It's a mindset of opposition against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And that means that Jesus' warning to us and the blessing to us, it stands today because we should never find ourselves there. See, the part about 2 Timothy 3 that people often forget is something Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and I'll leave you with this. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul urges his son in the faith, his, this young pastor at Ephesus, he says to him in verse one, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who shall judge the quick, the living, and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. He is coming back. He's gonna put an end to this nonsense. But I have to give you a charge in the meantime. Preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort 
here's the kicker, with all long-suffering and doctrine. In other words, do it with patience. We're real good at rebuking, rebu- uh, exhorting, and all that kind of stuff, whatever he says there. What does it say? Re- reproving. We're good at that. We don't do it very patiently. We're to do it with patience and with the mindset of a teacher. They don't know any better. Why? Why does he need to preach the word? Why does he need to do this? Because the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Who's the they? He's already been talking about the they all in chapter 3. You say, wait a second, the they's out there. And Paul says, no, the they's in here. That's the problem in the end. The problem in the end is that the world's this big, ugly creature going, ah, we're evil. The problem is, is they think they're righteous. They're in here. What we're going to get next week, we're going to see that John, when he sees the woman who rides the beast, it says he's shocked and horrified. Why would John, who's in prison because of what the world's done to him, be shocked that the world looks ugly? He's not shocked because the world looks ugly. It's because what he sees the church ends up looking like. He tells Timothy, preach the word to the people who are here because there's going to be a time when people are going to fill churches who don't want to hear the truth. But after their own lusts, the things he already mentioned in 2 Timothy 3, they're going to heap to themselves teachers having itching ears and they will turn away their ears from the truth and they'll be turned unto fables. What's the point? Verse 5, wake up. Wake up, Timothy. Tell your people to wake up. Watch thou in all things. What I say unto you guys about the end times, I say to everyone, wake up, watch. Why? Because it's easy to be deceived. It's easy to fall asleep. It's easy to get led away by our own lusts. So what's the point of all this? We're called to be those who always watch. We're called to be those who do endure sound teaching, right? We're called to be those who do love the truth, that we, we rest in God's love, right? That we believe Jesus is better, right? That's what we're called to be. We're called to be those who love what God loves and who hate what he hates to the very end. So whatever time we find ourselves in, we have a, a calling in front of us, a, a task to occupy till he comes. So as we close out this morning, that's my encouragement to you. God loves you so much. We sang about it, you know, resting in his love. Let's rest in his love. Let's trust that he knows what's best and that we'll never go wrong even if things are hard when we trust him. Amen? Let's all stand. Lord, you are so good and you're so much better. And yet, Lord, I know that just from my own life, there are times I struggle. I struggle, I get tempted and I I think, well, maybe this is better. You know, or or I want this, or Lord, sometimes when it's just hard being a Christian, it's just like, Lord, is it worth it? Lord, we've all gone through those things, and maybe there are some even today who are in that moment, struggling with their faith or struggling with temptation. Lord, we remind ourselves this morning that your love is, is worth it. The truth of your love is worth it. Loving what you love, hating what you hate is worth it because you're better. And so, Lord, we want that blessing of those who are gonna rouse ourselves out of sleep, to not be lulled into deception and to just cling to your righteousness to never trust in ourselves, knowing, Lord, that you will present us faultless before 
your Father with great joy. Lord, we look forward to that day, and we ask that you fill us with your Spirit so we can live out this right mindset. In Jesus' name, amen.